Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. Today we are talking about something that a lot of women and some men are obsessed with and emphasize and alter and tweak. We're talking about eyelashes, the blinky hairs on our faces, what they mean, what we use them for, and how we decorate them with the number one cosmetic in America, which is mascara. Yeah, and why eyelashes, long, lustrous eyelashes, are considered such a feminine beauty trait. Mm-hmm. Why are we so obsessed with our eyelashes? Why Why am I so obsessed with my eyelashes, Caroline? I don't know. I don't know. Why are you? Because they are considered, I think, <laughs> a, a feminine beauty trait. I mean, it's the first cosmetic that I really started wearing on the regular in high school. Mm-hmm. And if I wear anything, if I could only wear one thing out of my house, makeup wise, it would be mascara. Yeah, I uh, I don't like to I, f- I forget to put mascara on sometimes like I'll put everything else on. And I'll get to work and look at myself in the bathroom mirror and be like, why do I look strange? Something is amiss on my face. And then I realize it's because I didn't make my eyelashes look a mile long. They're just like my normal stumpy lashes. And it's one of those things where it's such a given that women care about their eyelashes. We Mm -hmm. will use mascara. And it seems like such a given that women will pay attention to their eyelashes. They will use a lot of mascara. This is something that we will care a lot about. And yet, rarely do we ever stop and ponder, wait, why? Why about this, you know, this strange set of hairs growing out of our eyelids? I distinctly remember being an early teen and reading like Teen Magazine or Seventeen or whatever. And they had they would have like comments from boys being like, boys are wondering about this about you. And one of them, one of the guys said, I distinctly remember this, said, uh, I don't understand why girls wear all that black gunk around their eyes. And I remember thinking like, yeah, you don't get it, do you, buddy? But of course, I don't even know if I knew like to back that up with anything. I just knew like, we do because we like it. Yeah, and we should. And and it makes us beautiful and feminine, right? Right. Uh, Well, first of all, Why don't we kick off with some eyelash science, just a brief primer on why we have these blinky hairs to begin with. And they are our eyeball protectors. They keep dust and debris out of our eyes. And they're also kind of like our eye whiskers. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If things get too close, it'll irritate the eyelash and we'll close our eyes instinctively. They send a little signal saying, hey, hey, something's too, something's too close to your eye, eye hole. Yeah, so it's, you go to the eye doctor when they put that thing right up against your eye, that's torture. Yeah, or when they, yeah, when they blow the air into your eyeball. Yeah, your eyelash is like, it's emergency! Stop everything. <laughs> Follow up podcast on Kristen and Caroline's <laughs> horror stories from the eye doctor. Right, so, I know that uh, when I was younger, my mother always berated me like, don't don't tug your eyelashes. They'll never grow back. But that's how you get the eyelash hairs that you can blow off to make wishes. I know. Well, so it took me like a long time to all of a sudden be like, let me think critically about what my mother said. But anyway, so eyelashes develop pretty early. Actually, when you are in utero, sometime between 22 and 28 weeks. 
And as a uh, a person outside of the uterus, they are continuously shedding and growing. So my mother was so wrong. That that thing that she told me was wrong. That they won't grow back? Yeah. Did she also tell you in the same sentence that if you cross your eyes, they'll get stuck? I don't, I'm sure she did. I'm sure she like said it and then was horrified and thought about how like, oh, I thought I would never say that, but I'm turning into my mother. Um, they actually grow for three months before they fall out. So that's, I think that's a lot shorter period than your head hair. Uh, and they can take seven to eight weeks to grow back if you pull them out of your face. So, I mean, your mom was then kind of onto something. Yeah. They would grow back, but just slowly. Right. Did you ever know anyone who cut their eyelashes off as a kid? No. I feel like I... I know someone, or maybe it was my mom telling me some horror story about why I shouldn't use scissors. I need to figure that out. There was some, some, uh, some cautionary tale I was told at some point as a child about some other child who cut off all of her eyelashes. <laughs> and it was bad news. Um, but there are a number of medications and health conditions that can cause people's eyelashes to fall out. Things like styes, psoriasis, and thyroid conditions. And that's just three of a laundry list of things yeah. that we could go through. But we'll, we'll, we'll save you the listening time. Right. And another another factor is age. Follicles can slow or stop producing hair altogether as you age. Um, but so, you know, eyelashes, they sound like they're pretty utilitarian. They they serve a purpose. They're just on our face to protect our eyeballs. There are eye whiskers. So could, I think that is the cutest thing. That, that could has the potential to sound gross, I feel like. But I think it's cute. I like it. I just picture, like, kitten whiskers. Anyway, um, so if they're so utilitarian, though... Like, why are we why are we so obsessed with emphasizing them? Well, Caroline, it's the most appropriate explanation for a lot of these things, because we've just done it for a really, really, really long time. So let's just keep doing it. Right. Well, in the ancient Middle East in general, people were blending minerals with oils and fats to darken their eyelashes and eyebrows. And they used coal as well. In ancient Egypt, though, playing up the eyes was not just for women. It was the thing that everybody was doing. Um, they would make coal from galena, which is lead sulfide, malachite, and other minerals mixed with animal fats. And I'm just like imagining that getting into my eye and, ugh, yeah, just I feel like that would burn. But they would line their eyes in the cat eye style that we think of from like Cleopatra and whatever. Uh, for both spiritual and practical purposes. Yeah, uh, on the practical side, this would reduce glare from the sun, kind of like the way that football players have the the eye black that they wear sometimes. And it also helped keep insects away because Galena was an effective insect repellent and disinfectant, which now I'm wondering why my mascara is not also an effective insect <laughs> repellent, because that seems handy. Uh, but when it comes to malachite, that other uh, ingredient that they would mix into the coal, it was believed to be a gift from Hathor, the goddess of love. So naturally, you would want to put it on your eyes because it was also an aphrodisiac. Right. So, I, I mean, everybody's putting on eye makeup and they're like, this is so handy. This very utilitarian, practical thing is also for sexy time. But it wasn't just for adults and sexy things. Kids would also have their eyes smeared with coal to both. They thought it would both strengthen eyesight and protect them from evil spirits. And in terms of spirits, 
it also represented protection from basically like the evil eye. Um, but it, uh, represented the eye of Horus and replicated images of Ra, the sun god. Caroline, yet again, follow up question. Why does my mascara <laughs> not also repel insects, but also protect me from evil spirits? I would buy that mascara. <laughs> That's an incredible claim. The FDA might have a problem with that. Yeah. And if we move over to India, there was a similar trend, a cosmetic trend of lining the eyes as well with dark coal. And it actually gets a mention in the Kama Sutra, which was written in the fourth century, that provided a recipe for what it called, quote, an ungiant of adornment that has the effect of making a person look lovely. Mm. So from the time of the Kama Sutra, this was a makeup tip. Hey, you want to look pretty? Some mascara. Well, it also cooled the eye area and reduced glare from the sun. So again, just like in ancient Egypt, there was a practical purpose and a spiritual slash sexy time purpose. Yeah, there was the religious significance of men and children applying coal during a traditional ceremony called the Surma. Yeah, and in ancient Rome, women would darken their eyelashes and a whole eye area really with burnt cork. And if you move into the Middle Ages and then the Renaissance and then further into the Elizabethan area, total break with history. Because this is when we see eyes really becoming de-emphasized to the point where some women got rid of their brows and lashes altogether in favor of highlighting the chests, which I get that's still a thing that people do, but also the forehead. Look at my beautiful forehead. I wonder if they were like, mine's a five head. Uh, with five fingers? Look at this big five head that oh, I have. Uh, Don't I you find me attractive? But by the time we get to the 19th century, cosmetics were becoming more and more popular among Europeans and Americans. And this was when big names in cosmetics began to emerge because you have women going DIY with their mascara. They would darken their eyelashes and eyebrows using homemade methods like ashes and even still that ancient Roman method of using the burnt cork Mm -hmm. to darken their eyelashes as well. But then in 1830, Eugene Rimmel came around and made things a a little bit easier. Right. Uh, A couple decades after moving from France to London with his pop, he actually developed an eyelash darkener using coal dust and petroleum jelly. So not using animal fats this time. And it was so successful that Rimmel became synonymous with mascara in a number of different languages. So we have Rimmel initially to thank for this earliest kind of mascara as we start to think of it today. Although mascara was not necessarily for everyone, at least according to Madame Lola Montez. Right. In 1858, uh, there's this book published that I am absolutely going to go back and read more of when I have time. Uh, it's Madame Lola Montez's The Arts of Beauty or Secrets of a Lady's Toilet with Hints to Gentlemen on the Art of Fascinating. Oh, so a book for your fella, too. That's right. Uh, yeah, so this was the stage name, by the way, of Marie Dolores Eliza Rosanna Gilbert, Countess of Lansfield. Ooh, but she she had some pretty darn strong opinions on uh, on eye makeup, where she basically was like, "Hey, some of you can pull this off, some of you can't. Don't even try." When talking about 
fair-skinned and fair-haired women, you know, think of your friends who have very light eyelashes or eyebrows and they might want to emphasize them so that, you know, they don't maybe don't look as pale. She warned them against participating in this whole eye makeup thing. She said, but take this fair creature and draw a black line over her softly tinctured eyes, stain their beamy fringes with a somber hue, and how frightfully you have mutilated nature. She was very in favor. She's like, well, you know, there are these women. They already have dark hair and dark lashes. That's fine. They can roll with it. But you fair-haired ladies, you stay away from that burnt cork. Well, she also had a tip for keeping your lashes long and strong. Which, yeah, it doesn't make any sense, and it's terrible. And your mother, or whoever told you the story, would not approve. You just trim them. Get some tiny scissors and trim those eyeball whiskers. She said, uh, it is within the power of almost every lady to have long and strong eyelashes by simply chipping with scissors the points of hair once in five or six weeks. Which actually today, if you use Latisse, Mm -hmm. you do have to do because they grow so long and so strong, they will bonk your glasses if you wear them. So you have to trim them very carefully. To me, that that feels creepy. Like, if my lashes were so long, I feel like I would be distracted. Oh, I wouldn't mind. (laughs) I love long lashes. Love long lashes. I do. Well, somebody else who loved long lashes was Mabel. Mabel Williams. Oh, Mabel. Uh, In 1915, uh, she inspired her brother, Tom Lyle Williams, uh, who later started the company Maybelline, which was named after his sister, Inspired by Mabel's use of a burnt cork and Vaseline to darken her eyes, a trick she stole from Photoplay magazine, who stole it from ancient history, uh, he ended up developing a mail-order formula for cake mascara. Although at the time it wasn't called mascara yet, all of this stuff was still being just called eyelash darkener. So this original Maybelline mascara, which, like you said, was not being called mascara yet, it looked sort of like a compacted blush or eyeshadow, as, as you would see it today. And the way you would apply this eyelash darkener was by taking the wand that it came with, and you would wet the wand and then run it over the cake mascara mm-hmm. and then wanded over your eyes. Which is funny because I feel like there are a lot of modern day beauty tips where they say, hey, take this cake of eyeshadow and wet your brush and you can get a fabulous dark line on your eyes. And it's like, oh, ladies, they were already doing that in Egypt. Gals, what's old is new. But by 1966, Maybelline, that little company started by Tom Williams, was earning more than $25 million a year. Yeah, and by the way, it was in 1933 that we started calling it mascara instead of eyelash darkener. Mm. But when it comes to false lashes, which are having a huge moment right now, uh, it was in 1915 that the first fake eyelashes, the first falsies, were developed at the order of film director David Griffith, who was working on this film called Intolerance, Love's Struggle Through the Ages. And obviously it's 1915, it's a silent film, and he wanted his lead actress, Cena Owen, to have lashes long enough that they would brush her cheeks when she would blink. So she needed really long lashes. So he got a wig maker to glue tiny strips of hair to her eyelids. But at that point, it was still just a Hollywood magic trick. It wasn't until the 1940s that false eyelashes became available 
to the public. Yeah, and then, of course, they had a huge reignition of popularity in the 1960s with all that strong, dark, thick eye makeup. And, I mean, I wear them every Halloween. I can't say that I, like, rock fake lashes any other time. Well, that might be good because all that glue near yeah. your near your gentle lashes. I don't want to rip out any of my eyelid whiskers. That's right, because they take seven weeks to grow back. Um, but if we go back, though, to the 1930s, there were some bumps along the road in our development of mascara and false lashes, uh, because this was this was uh, sort of the downside to our long-standing obsession with darkening these hairs on our eyelids. In the 1930s, women were getting maimed and blinded, and one even died from using this product called Lash Lure Eyelash and Brow Dye because it contained a highly toxic substance that would tint the hair but also cause irritation and ulcers. And so with that, eyelash dyes were banned in several states. Yeah, and it's around this time that we get the Food and Drug Act and the FDA and the Federal Trade Commission actually have to start approving claims and advertising and things like that. Um, because you don't really want ulcers that blind you. Yeah, if you, I'm just warning you, you can Google image uh, lash lure eyelash to see what it did to some of these women, but I'm warning you, that's not, it's not pretty. No, and in the 1930s and 40s, we start to see the development of eyelash curlers. The first one was actually Curl Lash in 1923. That's with a K. That's, that is with a K. And that was not a product of the, the Kardashian family empire. K for kooky. Uh, yeah, so we get eyelash curlers and waterproof mascara that was developed. I think there was one Austrian actress that patented a version of waterproof mascara. Yeah, and apparently, um, because a lot of these cosmetics come out of film and stage acting, and I think it was the, the Austrian actress you're talking about was a stage, stage actress who needed a mascara that could withstand her sweating under stage lights. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the early waterproof mascaras would stay on, but they also contained an adhesive so that after the actresses were done, if they left it on too long, their eyelids would get kind of stuck together. So it took some time to develop. What a freaking nightmare. Um, in 1958, Revlon launched their mascara in a tube with a spiral wand. And this was, there were a couple other people doing it at the same time. I don't think it was just Revlon. Um, but they ended up following it up in 1961 with the first colored mascara, which, you know, all of these things have obviously retained popularity. I just saw in some magazine, uh, like another s- recommendation for, um, colored, uh, mascara, which I used as a kid too. Not a kid, like a surly teenager. But anyway, in 1971, Maybelline, it's still around, launches its insanely popular Great Lash Mascara, which Sally uses, my mother. And by 2002, one tube of Great Lash Mascara was selling every 1.5 seconds. And what continues to fascinate me when it comes to mascara is how it seems like any time you see a commercial for mascara, they've come out with some kind of new innovation. Mm-hmm. It's like they're constantly improving and improving and improving on these mascaras, which obviously dubious marketing claims, but it just speaks to what a massive market force, like our demand for mascara that will 
perfectly elongate our lashes and make them look full and not get clumpy and do all of these things. Mm-hmm. How how huge of a force that is. Well, one of the guys uh, who works in the cosmetics industry who was in one of these articles that we read was talking about how even people in the industry were taken by surprise at the lengths <laughs> that women were willing to go to achieve this ideal lash. And that included like doing like a hundred strokes of mascara on each eye and they end up coming out with, they're like, okay, well, there's obviously a demand. <laughs> That's not a problem. We just need to put some products in front of these women that they'll go for. And that includes things like the vibrating uh, mascara wand. Oh, wow. Yeah, so you know how they tell you when you put on mascara to sort of wiggle the wand back and forth and drag it up? Yes. Well, this thing, if you're hardcore enough about your makeup... And and he specifies that. He said, this is obviously not for your average woman putting mascara on in the morning before she dashes out the door to work. This is for somebody who is hardcore into makeup and it's definitely going to spend a lot of time getting ready. And so the wand vibrates as you put on the mascara. Could you just use an old electric toothbrush? <laughs> get your get your 1920s cake eye darkener. Yeah. Put your put your electric toothbrush, wet your electric toothbrush, put it in there. <laughs> Bang, bang, boom. I think it's perfect. We're on to something. We are on to something. Probably very dangerous. <laughs> um, and I, I mean, I've also found myself standing in the drugstore cosmetic aisle. Yeah. Just staring at mascaras. How do you, how do you pick? I don't know. I mean, how many conversations have you had with other women about their preferred m- mascara, the mm-hmm. ones that they swear by that then you use and you're like, but this, no, this isn't doing what I need. And then, in, I feel like, every single edition of every single mainstream women's magazine, there is at least one feature on some new mascara that you have to try. Yeah, well, you know, I just don't... I've been burned before, Kristen, and I don't mean literally, like, with Lash Lore. I mean that uh, I will see some ha- mascara that's been really hyped up, and I don't want to, like, pick on any brands or whatever, but I'll see something that's been, like, super hyped up across magazines, and I'll say, well, God, if it's so great, I'll give it a shot. And then I've been severely disappointed because either it's completely under my eyes by the end of the day or I can't get it off, even though it's not waterproof, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I have found uh, a brand that I have used since high school and even the same type, like subtype of mascara in that brand. And I'm not going to give it up because it's too scary out there in the mascara world. There's too many choices. Well, and it's so easy for us as consumers to make those choices because like things like uh new tube of lipstick, a little nail polish. It's one of those small luxury mm-hmm. items that we we don't mind parting with uh, just a few dollars just to just to try it out. Although some can get quite expensive, but yeah. it's genius. I mean, it's it's honestly a genius product because it constantly keeps women guessing and spending usually insignificant enough sums of money right. that will just continue doing it. Well, that's like with lipstick. You know, we've talked about the lipstick index on the podcast before about like during the recession and during times of, of economic downturn, you know, everybody's trying to save money and they're down on their luck, but you're still going to go to the store and pick up a lipstick or in this case, a mascara, because it's a way to, to make yourself feel pretty and feel like you're still participating in a beauty ritual, but not spend $100 like you might on a fancy haircut. But if you want to spend not just 100 but hundreds of dollars on your eyelashes these days, you certainly can by getting eyelash extensions, which started in Japan and then started getting really popular in the States in 2005. And you go, there, there are actual eyelash beauty bars 
that you can go to these days where for a few hundred dollars or maybe more, you can lay down for an hour or two and have someone hand stitch eyelashes, fake eyelashes into your real eyelashes. Yeah. And it's funny. There were two different articles that we looked at uh, where women gave a first person account of trying this out and how one woman gave a hilarious account of like who in her life ranked them and who in her life noticed it first. And her boyfriend, she said like something like her boyfriend rolled over and was just going, huh, what's on your face? Uh, another woman was called out at her son's soccer game for having incredibly long lashes. And the other woman assumed she'd done like a walk of shame or something. Because her, it looked like she was still wearing so much makeup. Oh, wow. Yeah. But I, I, I can't say that I would do that. There's something that's scary. I, well, I don't have that much disposable income, A. But B, I'm scared about adhesives on my eyelashes. Yeah, it, it, it seems like a pretty daunting <laughs> procedure to go through just for lashes because they only last for a few weeks mm-hmm. max. Um, but if you want something that lasts a bit longer and also have more disposable income to spend, there's always Latisse, which hit the market in 2008. And I remember first seeing ads for Latisse and laughing mm-hmm. about how ridiculous it seemed. Yeah. Like I was like, oh, really? Are we really being sold longer lashes? <laughs> Come on, this is gonna tank. <laughs> no. I was I was so wrong, Caroline. Brooke Shields doesn't lie. No. Uh, or Claire Danes. Oh yeah, Claire Danes does it too. Um yeah, this is ba- it's a glaucoma drug that they found had the incredible side effect of making lashes longer. But like Kristen said earlier, you definitely got to trim those babies or else they will just keep growing. And and bringing us up today, like concluding our timeline, basically, uh, the mascara industry is nothing to sniff at. An international survey in 2002 found that 60% of women worldwide are using mascara, Maybelline remaining the best-selling brand. And it's the mascara market itself, just by itself, is a $4.1 billion industry. And I have a feeling that that number is even bigger today because that was reported on in 2009. So I can only imagine that the number continues to go up and up and up. And you will see trend pieces pop up every now and then about how guys are also getting in on the eyelash game. Uh, There's actually something called brand eye lure that makes false eyelashes specifically for guys, which are designed to be subtle and give guys what they call a Hollywood gaze. Hmm. So, so the the male gaze. Yeah. Oh, oh see okay. what I did there? Yeah. Well, Caroline, we've gone through the history of mascara and we've talked about how we've done it forever, but that still doesn't answer the question of why we pay so much attention mm-hmm. to these puppies, because it has to be more than just tradition. There has to be something behind this idea that bolder, more voluminous, longer, more lush eyelashes will make us more attractive. It's definitely related to the Kama Sutra recommending it. Oh, spicy. And we'll get into that spiciness when we come right back from a quick break. So there's this book called Love Signals, a practical field guide to the body language of courtship by David Givens and a grain of salt. Folks, just <laughs> grain of salt. Uh, but Givens claims that we spend so much time on our lashes because it's all about sex signaling. 
It's all about sex. Right, right. Yeah, he talks about uh, a good old rapid eye blink or eyelash flutter means that you've raised the blinkers level of psychological arousal. And so he says that batting the eyelashes is a familiar flirting cue seen around the world. And wearing mascara or artificial lashes embellishes that, hey, I find you sexy blink. See, I I find, though, anecdotally, that whenever I catch myself blinking rapidly, it's because I'm startled and shocked by something. <laughs> Some wire is crossed somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So that makes me fun on a date. And so by extension of that, Given says, of course, women wear mascara or artificial lashes to embellish the blink. But even though... We think of sort of in a tropey kind of way of batting your eyelashes as being a very feminine cue. It's a signal that we are trying to catch your attention or curry favor. Studies show, according to Givens, that both sexes blink faster with partners they like. So, yeah, pay attention. I don't I'm going to now start tracking my eye blinking when I'm. On a date with my boyfriend. Well, Givens actually recommends that people do that. Oh, pay attention to your blinking rate? Yeah, like not, well, not your own, but your dates. Like not counting them because you'd be like, oh, one, two, three, four. But, but sitting there and maybe talk about, maybe if they're looking away, see how often they're blinking if they're looking at the waiter or something. But then when they look back at you, if all of a sudden they're blinking a lot, take note. Oh, uh, body language cues. That's right. Again, grain of salt. Um, but he also talks in his book about how, and, and this is getting away from eyelashes, but uh, in general, he talks about how people tend to find moving faces more attractive, like facial movements and facial expressions make you more attractive in the eye of the beholder. And so he says that it's basically seeing big spider eyelashes blinking and moving uh, is part of prioritizing movement, the visual system prioritizing movement on the face and that fluttering your long lashes can catch and keep eye contact. Well, and there's also, when it comes to how we often use mascara to darken our lashes, that does tend to make the whites of our eyes look brighter. So there are theories that we use mascara so much, we're so into darkening our lashes, because by whitening the whites of our eyes, it makes us look healthier. Yeah. And... Uh, Margot DeMello, who wrote Faces Around the World, a cultural encyclopedia of the human face, says that eyelashes, just eyelashes themselves, are considered a sign of femininity also because they make the eyes look larger. And this gets into evolutionary theories about how men, straight men, are attracted to almost baby-face-looking women, not because of infantilizing purposes, but because there's this idea that babies evolved their super baby cuteness to specifically to keep fathers invested in them for the long term. And so over time, that translated to mm-hmm. their attraction to their female mates and bigger eyelashes make it look like you have bigger eyes, which makes you look sort of younger healthier. Do I look really young? Um, my eyes are super wide. Caroline's eyes are huge <laughs> and I'm scared. No, I, I definitely like all of this stuff resonates in my brain because on mornings, especially like this morning, I was super tired and I'm just, I, I find myself putting on a ton more mascara when I feel like I look tired or feel tired because I just, 
I, I almost want the mascara to just lift lift my eyes open and keep them open. Give me baby eyeballs. Baby eyeballs. That's all we need. And I also wonder, too, if by enhancing our eyes and making them look larger, sort of creating this optical illusion around our own eyes, is one example, too, of what's called a supernormal stimulus, which you hear a lot about uh, when it comes to why women look sexy in high heels, because it creates what's called a supernormal stimulus, sort of an exaggerated signal in the case of high heels of making our hips shift and making our butts bounce a little mm. bit, which is already a signal of you know, youth, fertility, et cetera, et cetera. So mascara might be creating one of those supernormal stimuli in our eyeball region as well. Interesting. So there's all sorts of evolutionary theories behind why we do it. Although I wonder yet again, you know, evolution, why, why couldn't, why couldn't you have made health and fertility as strong of a signal for men just so that they had to wear all this stuff too? They did in Egypt. But I think, I wonder if that's more though, that it was that hot, dry climate, mm-hmm. that it was more of the enhancing the utilitarian functions of mascara to keep stuff out of our eyes to deflect the sun's rays. Could be. Hmm. I mean, but it is interesting, just like total side note, that this practice does go back so long. Yeah. Forever people have been doing this. And you do have rocker guys, you know, those rocker types, some goth types. One of my ex-boyfriends. One of Caroline's ex-boyfriends who will rock some guy liner and some mascara from Mm -hmm. time to time. And uh, hey, guys, I mean, Johnny Depp and Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. All right. Messy, handsome. Yeah. Sloppy, handsome. Um, but eyelashes are definitely tied into gender cues. Uh, I mean, you could just ask any child reading a comic book. My dad used to joke when I was growing up and had goldfish. He used to joke about like, well, how can you tell which fish is the girl fish? She has eyelashes. <laughs> um, but no, that's a thing. That's really a thing. Um, there are plenty of comic book and comic strip examples, including characters like Minnie Mouse versus Mickey Mouse or Petunia the Pig versus Porky, who were like, here is a woman creature that has eyelashes because you can't, and especially in a children's cartoon like Disney or something, it's not like you can put bodacious breasts on a duck or whatever and have it be normal for kids. So they had to emphasize some sort of like secondary, non-threatening sex characteristic. Yeah, and that was something that Trina Robbins wrote about over in Image and Narrative. And I wonder, sort of based off that, if Barbie wasn't so curvaceous and had such prominent boobs, if maybe she would have had more prominent eyelashes. Because she doesn't have... I mean, her eyes don't blink. But I'm just saying... (laughs) This is a total side theory. <laughs> I'm now starting to think way too much about eyelashes. Interesting. But I hadn't realized before, I hadn't put that to, to the two and two together in terms of, oh, long eyelashes, gender cue for, you know, these cartoons that cannot yeah. be voluptuous. Because when things like Minnie Mouse and, and all of these characters are first being drawn early on in the 20th century, it, it's... You know, women in our culture had been darkening their eyes forever. And so it's obviously not that if Mickey Mouse were a real boy, he wouldn't have eyelashes because boys have eyelashes. But you do. The cartoonists had to find a way to indicate 
to give that gender cue to children to know, hey, this is a girl mouse. And kids do pick up on those gender cues, even down to the eyelashes from a very young age. Arizona State University psychologist Carol Martin actually noticed this effect of gender schema on her four-year-old niece because she she observed that when her niece drew stick figures, the women had eyelashes, but the men didn't. Well, again, I mean, if they're stick figures and you're a kid and you're like, I know you look like a person, but I don't know how to translate you looking like that to my piece of paper. I, I can just draw sticks. Like, I, I need you to know that this is a woman person. Eyelashes. Eyelashes. Give her some eyelashes. And considering all that we've now talked about, Caroline, it seems like the trajectory of our concern over our eyelashes has only gone up and up and up and up. It's never dropped off at any point. Mm-hmm. To the So today we have these expensive false eyelashes, you know, treatments that we can go get them sewn into our faces or we can get all these high-end mascaras. Um, it's never really dropped off. To where today, there's Latisse, there's the, the eyelash extensions that you can get hand-sewn into your eyelashes. There are all sorts of mascaras out there. And there are false lashes, which are so huge right now. I was actually in a cosmetic store this past weekend and took a while just staring at all of the different varieties of the false lashes. But speaking of false lashes, before we close out this podcast, real talk for a minute, we need to address the fact that those false lashes are being often made by women who are being paid just next to nothing, absolutely nothing. Yeah, The Guardian did an article on this looking at uh, women in Indonesia in particular because that's where the huge industry is and the factories are, um, that pointed out that, for instance, with the brand Eyelure's Katy Perry range of false eyelashes, the women who are making those in Indonesia start on about 50 pounds a month whereas the lashes sell for just under six pounds in uh, in the UK. And there are a ton of cosmetics and fashion names that have factories in Purbalinga, which is in central Java, Indonesia. And a lot of these companies uh, gravitate towards this region because of the very low legal minimum wage. And these women just aren't making any money. And I keep saying these women because about 90% of the workers in these factories making are false eyelashes that I go buy on Halloween. 90% of them are women. Well, and the fact, too, that you have all sorts of cosmetic companies that are in Purbalinga, including brands like L'Oreal, MAC, Makeup Forever, and Maybelline, it's probably not just the false lashes that are being made for, you know, next to nothing. And the women working in these factories going back to the false eyelashes, will make as little as seven cents for every pair that they make. But women working from home will make them who make them will make about two cents per pair. So I wonder if we need to do a follow up episode on this, talking about how our cosmetics industry here affects how that affects the women who are actually making these cosmetics and probably not going out to buy the newest mascara and the newest lipstick and get their nails done and ever have false eyelashes sewn into their eyes. Yeah, I mean, I, this is certainly something that makes sense, because, I, but I have never really thought about when I go pick up a pair every year for Halloween of false eyelashes, where they come from. I just think, oh, it's just the, the factory 
it cranks them out somewhere in New Jersey or something. It's the eyelash factory, obviously. The eyelash factory. I'll go there. But Hopefully it's not as creepy as the chocolate factory. Willy Wonka. But yeah, I mean, it's something to think about as we, as we celebrate and examine our, our eyelash habits. Yeah, and and also like consider how far we have gone. This is, I mean, it's a global industry. It's massive, and there are people on both ends of it, both on the production side and on the side that we're talking about in terms of going and consuming it. Right. So with that, we want to hear from you. We want to hear all of your eyelashy thoughts. Are you like Caroline and me and have spent a lot of time considering your mascara and eyelashes? Uh, let us know. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com. And if there are any eyelash conscious guys out there, I specifically want to hear from you. Because what do you do if you're a guy? Do you Can you get away with wearing mascara to make them look longer? Do you even care? I just want to know. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we have a couple of messages to share with you right now. So we've got a couple of letters here from some guy listeners about our episode on modesty. Joshua writes, I'm one of your newer listeners and I binge listen to you and the rest of How Stuff Works while I'm at work. And right now I'm listening to your modesty episode and wanted to share my thoughts as the father of two young boys. It is important, I feel, that women be taught to dress for the environment they're in and dressing modestly is also important. However, it's also the responsibility of young men to treat women with respect no matter what they're wearing. Locally, there's been a kerfuffle about what young ladies wear in schools and the double standards in terms of what the different genders can wear. Two things would help alleviate the issue surrounding dress codes and how young men and lesbian young women are, quote, distracted by their classmates. One, education. It's important that young people understand what is happening to them as they grow up and begin to notice potential partners. This way they can be shown what appropriate behavior is. Two, change the dress code of high school to reflect a business casual atmosphere. This will instill a sense of appropriateness for when your young people get into the real world. Personally, I'm in the modestest, hottest camp, which may have something to do with my Protestant upbringing. I intend to show my boys that a woman is beautiful no matter how she dresses and that she should be treated as a person who is no less or greater than they are. So thanks, Joshua, and thanks for raising your boys upright. Well, I have a letter here from Peter also about our modesty episode. Um, He says... I think when a lot of men weigh in on this subject, they don't have a clear understanding of how random and indiscriminate male gaze and harassment can be. I'm a cisgendered man who presents himself in a very feminine way. I have long hair and buy both men and women's clothing. I don't often get much of a hassle for it, but one experience sticks out in my mind. About a year ago, I was walking home from class on a rainy day when a man slowed his car next to me and, assuming I was female, began catcalling me. He offered me a ride. He repeatedly asked for my number, asked if I had a boyfriend. If you're male, this is something you are never taught how to deal with. You hear stories about catcalling and harassment, but you never understand how invasive it is until you experience it firsthand. I couldn't even process what was going on. I get misgendered by cashiers on an almost weekly basis, but this was another level of upsetting. He followed me for about a block before I finally got the nerve to tell him off properly. I spent the rest of the week obsessing over it, wondering what I did wrong. Was it something I was wearing? Was it the way I walked? After I got my thoughts together and consulted female friends about what happened, their response was a unanimous, no, he just thought you were a girl, that is why you were catcalled. 
They proceeded to share their stories with me of the workplace and the classroom. It was happening to them every single day. I could barely take it after it happened once. So to all of the other men in the audience, if a woman in your life tells you about how someone harassed her, please don't make it about modesty. Until you've walked a day in a woman's shoes, or in my case, a woman's pants, I don't think you're going to understand quite how complicated and personal this topic gets. No matter what you look like or what you're wearing, if some jerk thinks you're a woman, they're probably going to think it is totally okay to invade your privacy and to make advances on you. Thank you for another excellent podcast, and here's hoping my terrible experience can be put to good use. So thank you so much, Peter. Yeah, and thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. If you want to get in touch with us via social, you can find all of our links to that stuff, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, which also include all of our sources, so you can follow along with us. All that's over at StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.